We're continuing our study of some foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, we've talked about the doctrine of the man. We've talked about the doctrine of creation and providence. we talked about the doctrine of the scriptures. And last week we started on the doctrine of salvation uh, or soteriology. This is the last part of our series on foundations um, that will take us to the end of December. Um, as we saw last week, soteriology is the study of how God saves his elect. How he planned for it, that's what we saw last week with election, reprobation, and so on. And how he applies it. From now on, that's all we're going to be talking about. How God applies the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next uh, few weeks. And theologians call that the order of salvation or the ordo salutis. You've seen that perhaps in, in some literature that you've read before. And it's really addressing the 10 steps that we, took, uh, we looked at last week. Uh, by the way, these are all on our blog. If you go to olympiabp.net, you can see these are posted. Click on blog. Those are posted there. That way you don't have to feverishly copy these 10 steps. This morning we're going to try to look at these first two, factual calling and regeneration. And then in following Sundays, we're going to take a look at repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, progressive sanctification, perseverance in holiness, and glorification. Remember, this is a list of logical steps, not necessarily times, the chronological steps. A lot of these things are happening at the same time. Some of these are acts of God. That is, they happen in the moment of time. Some of these are works of God. They, they happen uh, over a period of time. Uh, the, the one that is most obvious to us as a work of God is uh, progressive sanctification. It's, it's not something that happens to us immediately. Thus, the title progressive sanctification is, is a work of God through which we, be, we die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Justification is a, an act of God. It happens in an instant. And so it is adoption. So it is glorification. These are acts of God. They're instantaneous. And that's the difference in theological writings. When you read something as the work of God, it's something that takes time. And when it's an act of God, it's something that happens. Right, that, at least that's the distinction that our standards, uh, Westminster standards, make. Uh, there, So that's our list for the next few uh, weeks is to look at these 10 things. This morning we're going to be looking at factual calling and regeneration because they're just li- different labels to the same doctrine. Right? So we're just distinguishing here for a logical approach. And let's uh, start by turning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17 with a little bit of commentary as we go through. As we start thinking about effectual calling and regeneration. Alright, so John 3, starting at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, 
Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. It's interesting that the way that John writes this, when it says he came to him by night, is uh, he came acting with this kind of action that only happens by night. The, the, the picture is that he's coming, like walking in the shadows so that he, can't, he won't be seen. He's trying to hide himself under the cover of night so that people don't see him coming to Jesus. And he comes and, and he, he heaps praises upon Jesus, but notice that the, his praises fall short of the truth, of the whole truth concerning Christ, right? He tells him that he is a teacher come from God, and that's it. And that's not um, the fullness of what, uh, Jesus, well, who Jesus is. And that helps us understand why Jesus answered him the way he does. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, uh, we say, man, Jesus, the guy comes and praises you, and you just step on his neck right off the, you know, uh, right off the, 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 the beginning here with him. Uh, well, he, this guy did not know Jesus. He had a false view of Jesus. So Jesus does no small talk. He wants to correct him right away. And he says that unless you're born... And um, most of our translations have again there. That's a journey to the King James. Is actually uh, the, literally is born from above, which makes a little more sense. Um, uh, most translations will have a little footnote that says that that's what... Uh, and that's not a textual variant. That's the, all the texts agree on, on that. So unless you're born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it talks about this, bo- this birth that happens after the birth. Right, so it's, it's, that's why the word again comes up. Nicodemus adri- enters this idea of again in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is lost here, right? He said, What are we talking about? I, I, we have, how is this going to work to be born from above? And Jesus then says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, so two births, right? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say, said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what is this that, that, that Jesus is saying about the, equating the new birth with the Spirit? Well, the idea is that you can't see the Spirit. You can't figure out where it's coming from unless you, are, you have a Doppler radar or whatever it is that they have on, on, on the news and so on. You just see the results, right? The, spirit, the wind works however it wants, and you just see... Uh, the results. And that's how it is a new birth. You don't contribute anything. We don't contribute anything to the blowing of the wind. You just see the results of that after the work is done. You know that the wind blew because there's stuff on the ground and so on. You know you're being regenerated because now you have new affections and so on. That's the point that uh, Jesus is making here. And it's a play on words too because uh, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same. Both in Hebrew and in uh, in Greek as well. 
And then in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Well, he's puzzled. And what Jesus says in verse 10 is very important, though sometimes we miss it. He says, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So Nicodemus was known as the teacher. It's not just a teacher. It's the teacher of Israel. And he didn't know these things. Jesus expected Nicodemus. You know, he's being a little sarcastic here as well. But he expected Nicodemus with the scriptures he had, so the Old Testament scriptures, to have known this. So it tells us that Jesus is not teaching a new concept. It's something that should have been known with the scriptures from the Old Testament as well, that, that one must be born from above. There's this second birth that comes from God, and that the, the, the same way with the first birth, right? The, the, we don't have anything to do with the first birth. We're just born. The second birth, we don't have anything to do with it either. We are just born there. Can you think of an Old Testament passage? There might be a parallel to this passage. So if Jesus expected them to have known this from the Old Testament, can you think of any Old Testament passages that might be teaching that? Everybody's still full of turkey and stuff. Yes, Linda. Will you remove your heart of flesh and give you, I mean, your heart of stone and give you a heart Right. That's Ezekiel 36. Yes. Uh, a prophecy about concerning the new covenant. Yes. Good. Yes, Lewis. I was thinking about Abraham being righteous because of his faith. Yes, so you're on the right track. Great answer, but for a different question. Uh, right? Because what we're talking about here is something that precedes faith. You're born again. There's nothing new. You, 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 you don't act at all. Right? You, you, you don't have faith. You're just not there, and then you're born again. So you're not contributing anything. Faith follows, as we're going to see in a moment, that new birth. Uh, the passage to me that is the most parallel to this is the next chapter to the chapter that Linda brought up, though it's based on that, is Ezekiel 37, with the Valley of Dry Bones. So Ezekiel is told to prophesy, to preach, to a bunch of dead bones. And as he preaches, what happens? The wind blows. And those dead bones respond to the preaching by becoming alive. And that's exactly what the new birth is. Exactly what the fascial calling and regeneration are, is that new birth, that from nothing, from deadness, be made alive, in response, and response is not a good, uh, a good word either because the dead people are not responding, <laughs> they're dead. And, and by, by means of, is a better way, of the proclamation of God's word. And that's really what effectual calling and regeneration are. Renee? I was wondering, is there a, a significance in the difference between using the word see in verse 3 and enter in verse 5? Are those meant to be synonymous? In, I, I don't think they are. Um, they, I don't think they are supposed to mean two different things. In 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 here. Um, so, 
That, so in a nutshell, if you want to keep one passage associated with the generation, I think John 3 is a good one, which is interesting. That's also one that is often used to teach the opposite of what I'm teaching here because of verses uh, 15 and following. But verses 15 and following are only true because of the preceding verses. Now, people come to faith when they have been born again. Notice that in the progression, as Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, he starts first with a new birth. Then he says, then that person believes, and whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a sequence that Jesus follows here in, in this passage. So let's split these two just for uh, the uh, purpose of, of learning, though they're talking about the same doctrine. Let's talk a little bit about effectual calling and we you know, define them. Now, regeneration deals with the divine part of our initial salvation. It's God acting in us. The Armenian and inconsistent Reformed um, position redefined effectual calling to, to say that it precedes re- regeneration, that somehow effectual calling happens, then at a different time, regeneration happens. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, it's just that they're talking about different sides of the same call. Effectual calling emphasizes the work, uh, the, 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 response, the preaching of the word, and God is calling you to come in a way that works, and regeneration emphasizes what's happening in you with the new birth and with the new heart. The interesting passage is uh, Matthew uh, 11, 28-30, where we emphasize 28 through 30, but if we go a little earlier, 27, Jesus bases that general calling of the gospel on the election of verse 27. So he, the gospel goes out to everyone, and we, as followers of Jesus Christ, proclaim the word of God to everyone. And yet, those that are factually called are those that have been appointed to be born again and to come to faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the factual calling emphasizes the power of the saving work distinguishing it from the general call given to all people in the gospel. And regeneration, the new birth, emphasizes the extent of this saving work, showing the total change made in the individual. As a, when we talk about new birth, it's a complete change. You're a new person. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, all thing, old things have passed away, all things are made new there. And in that way, effectual calling and Regeneration equivalent to the fourth point of Calvinism, which is irresistible grace. It's the idea that God will save those whom he decides to save. So these three things are talking about the very same act of God. Any questions before we continue? All right, so let's specifically look at factual calling a little more. As I said, there is a general call of the gospel. Right? The Bible talks about that, even uh, uh, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come unto me, all who are um, burdened and heavy laden, and weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's a general call. Jesus is calling everyone to come to him. As a preacher of the gospel, he's just putting the gospel out there and say, 
come, and that's how we proclaim the gospel. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah did the same thing, or G, uh, God, through the prophet, said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as woe. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you have this general call, right? Come, and if you come, these are the things that are true of you. So even God issues this general call to all people to come to Him. That's also the call of the Spirit. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, and the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Wherever desires, let him take the water of life freely." So again, the Spirit and the Church, which who is the Bride, say, "Come to everyone." It's not our job to filter the proclamation. It, it, we 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 bring it. We we proclaim it to everyone. Are we, are we clear on that? The, the, the reform positions are often accused of, oh, we don't care about the souls of people, we only care about the elect, and the answer is no. no. We don't go around looking for some yellow E on people's foreheads. Uh, we can't see that. We proclaim the gospel to everyone. Spurgeon used to say, so Spurgeon was a very reformed, was a very reformed preacher, thoroughly believed in the election, but he said he would preach the gospel as if people's salvation depended on him. That he would preach the gospel as if he was the only person between, him, between the person and the abyss of hell. And that's how we proclaim the gospel. That's the general call of the gospel. But there is also an effectual call that's not given by us. It's given by God himself to the elect, whereby God effectually draws them to receive the gospel and come to Christ. And this is important for us to keep in mind, uh, look at uh, here on the screen, Romans 8.30. Paul says, Moreover, whom he predestined, there's a particular group, these he also called. So no one who is predestined stays outside of this call that also lead, leads to justification. See the next thing there in the verse, which also leads to glorification. So there's, there's a general call. Not everybody responds to them. But those who have been appointed by God to be saved will respond and will continue all the way to the end. Grab a hymnal for a second and turn to page 871 using the small numbers in the bottom of the page. 871. So you are there in the shorter catechism. And question 31, so eight, page 871, using the little numbers in the bottom, look at question 31. Ask, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. So it calls a work. So it's something that uh, it, it, it will happen. It can, it can take time to happen in the heart of a person. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery... Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So it's a work by which God prepares us to receive the gospel. It's a work, it's a work by which God enables us to receive the gospel. And this effectual calling normally comes 
through the preaching and hearing of the Word of God. That's what Paul told the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-15. He said, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit in, and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel. So this effectual calling normally comes through the proclamation of the Word of God, of the Gospel, the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. But it's not a response. I know I used that word earlier, but we're not responding somehow as if we have the ability. Is God using that means to give us life. Everything is the work of God there. Any questions before we continue? Jerry. The term our Gospel, it, it almost has an implication that it's a Gospel that the apostles had not prayed. Is that, is that, that would be a difficult argument to make from the scriptures. Because when Paul says, this is what I'm proclaiming, I'm proclaiming the gospel that has for its foundation the apostles and the prophets, and the chief cornerstone of that gospel is Jesus Christ himself. And he keeps on referring back to what Jesus said and did we see that in the writings of John, as we're going through First John. Jesus, John keeps saying, as you've heard, as you've heard, as you've heard. So he's not, uh, there's no difference between the gospel proclaimed by, the, by Christ and the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. As a matter of fact, Paul says that there is, there is any other gospel. If somebody comes proclaiming to any other gospel than the one we have proclaimed, what are we supposed to do to them? Literally say to them, go to hell. Right? Anathema. So there cannot be any other gospel than the only gospel from Christ as taught by the apostolic okay, uh, so college. referring to everybody previous to him, even from the Old Testament? Not necessarily. I think when it says our gospel, just if you look at the, the beginning of first, uh, Second Thessalonians, he lists several people. So it's just that's all he's doing. We, uh, uh, our gospel, these are the people writing to you. And our gospel is the apostolic gospel, which is the same that Christ delivered to us, which is the same faith that the church has believed since its inception uh, with Abraham and even going back to Adam. Anything else? Tony? Um, you said the effectual calling and then the, that Nicodemus was supposed to know mm-hmm. from the Old Testament. Is there always a big proclamation given like from the Lord, from God, from the prophets? Is that yeah, so is it, has it always been where there is a proclamation of the Word of God and then the Spirit works to change people? That's what you're asking? Yes. I believe so. Even if, you, uh, even if it's direct from God, right? It, uh, we, we see that with Adam and Eve. There was a direct proclamation from God to them. Um, we see that with uh, uh, the next big chapter would be Noah. We see that with Noah. We see that with Abraham. And then with Abraham, it, it becomes so not, so not as direct from God as, as it used to be because now the visible church is organized and Abraham is told, proclaim these words to your people. And now the church becomes the steward, or the, the, as Paul calls, the ground and pillar of the truth. And the church in the Old Testament starts proclaiming that. And there's always that response. We see that with uh, Jonah as well and, and, and so on. We see that with every single major prophet that is listed in the Bible. There's this first proclamation of who God is and what God has done and then that man is made ready to 
to go out and do something for the Lord, and, and, and the gathering of the people of Israel is the same, the same way. Does it make sense? So that, so then the, I don't want to say God, it takes his hand, or I guess he uses more and more means than himself, or just his, his. So the means are the same. He always uses more ways to deliver it. Does it make sense? The means is the proclamation of the truth of God. And then he uses more modes to deliver that proclamation. Would you say that he could still use just himself, even with the... It could. You notice how I said normally happens? So, uh, I, because God can do whatever God does. So, normally, our, our standards use the word ordinarily happens. Um, and so that's what we, we should focus on. But he, he could. There are examples in the scriptures. He uses a different... Um, different way to deliver that message, right? With John the Baptist in the womb, with Jeremiah in the womb. So there are, there are and uh, and our confession says that he's still able to do that. With, uh, with uh, and you know, not everybody needs to have a high IQ or even an uh, IQ considered average. The, the handicapped people can come to faith in Jesus Christ as God works in them in a different way than. But generally speaking, that's what we should be looking for. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in places where the gospel is proclaimed before. You know, uh, now, God might use you work in the Pentecostal way, I don't mean in the, like, a, you know, yes, but in the Pentecostal way, as in, in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, in places where the word's never been before. But that's not how he ordinarily works. Any other questions before we continue? All right, so we're looking from the side of the vector call. I'm going to shift, shift and just use the word regeneration to talk about the same doctrine, but we're going to turn it around a little bit to look from a different uh, perspective. God's effectual call does not bring us to Christ by force. Okay? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring us to Christ against our nature. Nobody comes to Christ kicking and screaming. That doesn't happen. It changes our nature so that we come willingly. And that's the emphasis of regeneration, of the new birth, that change, so that now we come willingly. We see that in Jesus' teaching, where in uh, John 6, it says this, All of the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will know, by no means cast out. So they will come. It's not like they're going to be forced to come. They will come. Uh, later on in the same chapter, in verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And here the word draw is not necessarily you know, yank by force, but uh, it's this, this idea of wooing, of drawing, of coming. So there's a willingness that comes there. Uh, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught. I see your hand. Just wait one second there. And then in Ephesians, for me, really, Ephesians 2 is the clincher here, where Paul says, and you... He made alive who were dead. And notice the word uh, here is not shown that way, but the, in, in the King James, New King James, he made alive is in italics, which means it's not in verse 1. It's drawing the verse, it's borrowing the verb from verse 5. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the loss of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, children of wrath, just as the other. And then, but God, right? God did something. This is who we are. This is our nature. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So there's this, uh, this changing of our nature. This is, our nature was such that was walking away from Christ. Uh, the, the, the picture of dead is, is even worse. You know, dead tends to be neutral, like you just can't do anything. Here is a, a dead who is actually walking away from Christ. Is doing the things by nature that were contrary to Christ. But God then changes that and is working in us to make us alive together with Christ by grace of being saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavens places, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God is doing that. He changes us. And notice that in verse 5, I don't have the verses here, but I think it's verse 5, it says, by grace you have been saved. Is that what it says? Yeah. And so, uh, and notice that he doesn't have, add faith here. Faith doesn't come into verse 8. Right? Because at this stage, there's nothing, faith is not there. It's God is the one changing. God is the one, we haven't responded yet in faith willingly. That's what comes next as we come willingly to uh, the Father. So this entire change of nature is a divine work. It's not something we do. We're, the only thing we bring to it is our deadness. And Christ is the one, God is the one who makes us alive. Levi. Um. Well, I've heard it said the other way more often. You've heard it said more often, like what? It's a physical act of God. It's definitely not a physical act. Not a physical, but but, but, but the actual act of God doing something rather than. Yes. Um, But even if, if you want to put it that way, it's used both ways in the New Testament to in the woo and in the actual like drawing water from a well is the same word yeah, yeah, that's but it's not it's not like you know come on Noah you're going to come with me grab him and Noah right because uh, even if I want to draw Noah that way I can't he's stronger than I and I am so it's not the kind of drawing that's happening it's a drawing that when I reached out to Noah he comes willingly he's not resisting that coming yeah, I heard it said before, like, uh, the water's no longer as well as in the bucket. It's got the bucket kind of Sure. But even then, it's not a great, because water, according to gravity, is still trying wanting to go down. That's not really what's happening. We come most willingly at that time. Does it make sense? So, some, so analogies always are going to fall short at some point, right? Even biblical analogies, at some point, they're going to fall short of the truth that they're trying to, to illustrate. So, as we saw in the, uh, on question 31 of the Catechism, uh, effectual calling, regeneration, includes three elements. It includes the enlightening of the mind. So, as, as God is working, as our mind is being enlightened, Paul says, well, Christ told Paul this. He said to, that, he, that he's doing that to Paul to open their eyes, that Paul is going to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, so Paul is going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles so that their eyes might be opened. That's their, their, that's their minds being 
enlightened. That's the regeneration. When our eyes are open, that's when we've been born again. Now we're able to respond in faith. Uh, uh, regeneration includes also renewing and purifying the nature. That is the heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone and out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it will result in a new will. Or a will that's able to respond to God. In Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and, to, and do them. Wasn't able to do that before the heart was changed. Now you're able to do that, to obey God and go, go toward God. And when God begins his work of regeneration, man is passive, not active. Again, Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Any quick questions before we continue? All right, so what's the relationship of regeneration to faith? Of all the passages we've seen, the new birth happens prior to faith. Faith is the response that comes from a heart that has been changed. I think Billy Graham wrote a book, uh, what, what Am I Still to Be Born Again? If it was written from a Reformed perspective, it would be a bunch of blank pages. Right? Because we don't do anything to be born again. God is the one that's working on us. And then after we're born again, we respond in faith. Uh, you can look at question 32 of the West, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's page, the same page, 871, and they're going to turn there. But it is that that's the case, that we first we are born again, then we respond in faith. And that makes sense. Um, I'm going to skip a few passages here. Uh, I'm going to show one. Look, I mean, 1 John 5, 1. Uh, John says, whoever believes that Jesus is, is the Christ, is born, or literally has been born. That is, the birth, the action there of that verb, birth, being born, is happening prior to the, to the action of believe. Whoever believes now has been born in the past of God, and everyone who loves him, who, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. So John clearly says, if you believe, it's because you've been born prior to that. You can't change that order because dead people don't believe. Okay? Any questions before we finish with the last non-controversial at all uh, subject? All right. Talk a little bit about what Tanya asked. Regeneration without knowledge. Can people be regenerated without the knowledge of the gospel, without the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, remember, what's the, what's the argument? How about that guy in that South Pacific island who's never heard of Christ? Is it fair that he goes to hell? Is it, can he be saved without the proclamation of Christ? And the answer is, if that guy exists, he's going to heaven. If that guy exists in that South Pacific island, he's going to heaven. The problem is the Bible teaches that guy does not exist. Because Romans 1, 18 through 25 says that everyone 
knows God. And everyone has sinned against God, and therefore everyone deserves the wrath of God. So the innocent guy in the South Pacific Island doesn't exist in reality. Right? It just is a figment of our imagination. So no one can be saved apart from the Lord changes his heart through the gospel. That, that's an absolute. Our, our confession says there's no salvation available outside of the church. That is the visible church of Jesus Christ. Unless you're brought into by God through the proclamation of the gospel, there is no salvation available to you. Questions on that? All right, so what's the next question? What about infants dying in infancy? Or how about those who are incapable of actual response to the gospel message? Okay, let me repeat. There's not a single innocent human being who ever lived other than Jesus Christ. Okay? We were conceived in sin. Not the action, not the action of conception, but we have been sinners since conception. Because the sin of Adam has been counted as ours. And we're not only polluted by it, we not only bear a sinful nature, but we also carry the guilt of Adam's sin. So there's no innocent person. There's no age of innocency or accountability. There's no innocent person. Every person ever conceived deserves eternal hell. Right? So that's something that we have to get our heads across, our minds Across, So there's no little baby in the womb that deserves to go to heaven. If they go to heaven, it's because of the grace of God operating in them, not because they are neutral or righteous. Even the idea of a neutral person going to heaven is foreign to the scriptures. Because the scriptures require for you to have a relationship with God, you have to be positively righteous. Not just not a sinner, but a perfect obeyer of God's law. All right? Well, but our confession says this. Now, this is a, a way to say nothing by using a lot of words. It says, elect infants, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleases. Okay? So, if a baby dies and he's an elect, he's going to go uh, to heaven because God is going to give him a new heart. And God is going to somehow enable that baby to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ is going to be imputed to him. Because there's no other way to heaven. Okay? So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Lord. This is the uh, 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 severely handicapped, mentally handicapped people that, that as far as we know, can't um, cognitively interact with the world around them. All right? So if the baby's elect, they go to heaven. That's what the confession says. As I said, there's a, a lot of words to not say much because we don't know who they are. Hold on. Um, the Bible Presbyterian Church has said this. In adopting the confession of faith, this general sin declares, with regard to the salvation of those dying in infancy, we do not regard... This is poorly written, but this is what it says. We do not regard our confession as teaching or implying that any who die in infancy are lost. So the declaratory statement in our, in our constitution says that they don't believe the confession to teach that any who die in infancy are lost, making possibility that all who die in infancy 
our elect and go to heaven. Uh, the position one takes on this issue is based on inference and therefore cannot be certain. Uh, it is my personal belief that the infants of saved parents or the infants of, of professing parents would properly, uh, who, who would, would, who, parents who would rear them in the knowledge of the Lord are elect according to the principles of covenant theology. So if they die in infancy, then God will regenerate them and bring them to themselves. On the other hand, infants of unbelieving parents do not seem to appear in scriptures in any relationship with God at all. Uh, normally they are pictured as sharing in the judgment of their parents. If you look at the plagues of Egypt and in Revelation, the children are also wiped out by them, uh, the children of unbelieving parents. But the children of believing parents are called to, uh, we're told, in, in, at least in, in, one, in several places, not the least uh, 1 Corinthians 7, that they are in a special relationship with God. Therefore, I can, I can, in good conscience, comfort as a pastor, comfort a parent who lost a child in infancy. Say, you will see that child again in heaven in the arms of the Lord Jesus. There's no such comfort for the children of un, unbelievers. Nick, uh, no, Nick, Chris. Um, so, faith comes by hearing, typically, right? And then we looked at the WCF 1.3 or whatever. Um, so, the infants, they can still be regenerated without actually hearing the word. Correct. Typically, that's ordinary means. Yeah, we're talking about a very specific uh, slice of infants dying in infancy. Or significantly. Like Correct. Yes. Yeah. We, but we have to be. The, the, our tendency is, oh, we hear that and say, okay, that's we're gonna. This is uh, exceptions, and we're gonna make the rule. The rule is that people are regenerated through the proclamation of the word of God. Let's just camp there, and the exceptions are well, exceptions, and that's where we leave them. Right. Any last question before we close? All right, so you may ask, what is the practical use of this lesson? Well, first of all, we notice that regeneration is a complete change of the whole being by the enlightening of the mind, renewing of the heart. So we should act as the new persons we are. Our identity is no longer who we were outside of Christ. Our identity is we are in Christ, in our new person, our new life, our new heart. In addition, we learn that regeneration is the work of God apart from us, which should make us thankful to the Lord. There's nothing in us that causes God to give us a new birth. It's just out of the blessings of His own will for His own glory. Somehow, they glorify God to change my heart, to change your heart. I can't figure out how in the world that could be. But it did. And we're thankful for that. And lastly... We saw that regeneration takes place as the word is, pro is, is proclaimed. So we must proclaim it. Instead of worrying who is elect and who is not, we're not called to worry about that. We're called to proclaim and let God do what God is going to, to do. So there's very practical applications, applications from this doctrine that God is the one that changes us. And then we respond in faith. Lord willing, next week we will consider... 
repentance unto life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, leading to justification. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your work in us. We thank you for the new birth that comes through your spirit working in us to change us. Uh, we pray that uh, that would lead us to thankfulness, lead us to obedience, and to a faithful proclamation of your word. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.